0: Another episode of the William Branham Historical Research podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org, and with me I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced Or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals? Well, Charles, last week we went through a lot of questions, and we still have a stack of questions. Um, We're recording all of this in one big segment, but we're splitting it up so that people have an easier time digesting it. And um, we're... Hopefully right now you and I are taking a nice vacation from <laughs> all of this while everybody else is thinking through the questions. And I'm certain that there are people who are seeing the questions. They want to send us more. But, hey, we're on vacation, right?
1: <laughs> That's funny, John. Yeah, what? What? It, it's uh, the end of August, so it will probably be. The end of October, November, before some of these episodes come out that that we recorded, we're so far ahead with some of this stuff. So, yeah, um, so we've got a our first exciting question today, and I'm I'm really glad to have the opportunity to ask the questions because we have. Uh, We've had lots of people send in questions throughout the series, and a lot of them we've answered privately or direct them to episodes where we've already answered the questions. But some of these ones that are unique or or maybe clarifying questions, I'm, I'm glad to touch on. And the first question we have here today is, are there any books in William Branham's library which say Eve was designed by the devil?
0: Yeah, Charles, that is definitely a question for you. You're the one with the library. I'm the one that has guitars (laughs) in my background. So definitely one for you. But to give some background on the question itself, this comes from the marriage and divorce sermon that we previously examined. William Branham gives this very evil statement that Satan and Jesus were co-equal. He used the word co-equal. And he said that during the creation, William Branham's twisted version of the creation story was that Eve was designed by the devil purposefully to deceive the man. And you have the book, so I'll let you answer the actual question. But there is one interesting tidbit that I'll give that thoroughly shocked me whenever I first began to deprogram and get into actual Bible study. And it's learning the phraseology of the King's, the King James Version of the Bible, learning how words change their meaning over time. It's not that it's right or wrong, it's that the time it was written, the language was slightly different. And you can you can look these up, you know, words that have shifted over time, especially from the date in which the King James Version was written. But one of the words that has slightly changed is the word rib. The Bible says that male and female created he, God, them, Adam and Eve. And they were created as one. And then in the King James Version, it said God took (laughs) the rib and created Eve. The common unstudied version of this in Christianity, which wasn't centralized to William Branham, but to Christians in general, was that it was God reaching in and grabbing an actual bone, and from that bone created the woman. And that's where William Branham got this false notion that she was the lesser creature because it was just, (laughs) it was the bone, right? But the Bible says bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The word rib meant the same thing as side, And you can find this if you go back and read some of the old books where it's talking about the side of a hill, for example. It would say the rib of a hill, and it's talking about a side of something. And if you understand what it truly is saying in the ancient languages, it means that there was a single being that split into two beings, and that was Adam and Eve. And from there... It's, there's different schools of theology on the status of women, which I'm not going to get into that at all, but from its inception, God designed Adam and Eve, and it said male and female created he, God created he, them, this being, and then they split into two. And from there, I'll let you pick up because where William Branham went with it is so anti-biblical that there's not a word that describes how evil this was.
1: Right. Uh, It it is so strange what William Branham did with this. But yeah, basically he taught in that sermon that women were designed by the devil. And that was a thus saith the Lord's sermon that he said he got in a supernatural experience when he was up in a mountain shortly before he preached it. And so, of course, the Some people believe that was, you know, some great new revelation. So the question here is, um, was that in one of William Branham's library books? Or was this really some great revelation um, that he received from from God? Which, of course, all you got to do is go read the account in Genesis and and realize Eve was not designed by the devil. And that just tears all that apart. But as far as um, where it could have came from, so there are, in William Branham's possession were several of uh, the books of the Apocrypha. We know for sure William Branham did have access to that because he actually read direct quotes out of some of those books of the Apocrypha at times in his sermons. So um, I think the most obvious one is that he um, he read at times out of the Book of Enoch, for example, um, and so he he made multiple times he would quote out of the Book of Enoch in his sermon. So we we know for sure he did have the books of the Apocrypha, and one of the um, books of the Apocrypha uh, is called the Origin of the World, and in that book, Eve was created by evil forces. And uh, that basic premise that Eve was created by evil forces can be found in a number of different Gnostic writing, um, and of course, that is all heresy. Right? Gnosticism was the very first heresy in the Church. And it was condemned by um, the Apostle John in the Bible itself, and so for William Branham to incorporate ideas that had been debunked by the Apostle John and by you know Irenaeus and the first generation of church fathers is is really problematic. But yeah, it, it's possible he got those ideas out of the um, Gnostic apocrypha, or at least the general concept of it, and we know that. Um, William Branham also is descended from British Israel ideology as well, right? And we know that some of the early British Israelite um, prophetesses um, and some of the early British Israelite leaders going back to the late 1700s and into the eighteen early 1800s, they themselves actually were directly incorporating Gnosticism purposefully. They had got a hold of some of these books of Apocrypha and were directly incorporating Gnostic ideas into some of um their British Israel ideas, and so you you actually have a a stream of Gnosticism that comes into British Israelism through that route directly through the Apocrypha, through those prophetesses and it's possible that William Branham picks some of this up through you know just the other people who believe some of this stuff among the British Israel crowd. Um, and, and may have not even realized it was not, you know, Gnostic apocrypha, because, of course, none of them are saying, hey, I'm teaching you Gnosticism. <laughs> They're saying, hey, I'm teaching you this great revelation, which uh, someone secretly copied out of a Gnostic book, you know, 100 years ago. So it's it's really, um, really unfortunate stuff.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting study. And for anybody who's able to do this, not everybody is able, but for those who are able – I highly recommend reading Irenaeus' Against Heresies and not just reading the book because it's a very challenging read, but as you read the book, also read and understand the cultures that he's talking about, the time periods that he's talking about, the religious belief systems that he's talking about, and not just for William Branham's message cult, but for many similar cults that developed from the Lateran movement, you're going to find that against heresies (laughs) identifies almost every secret knowledge, secret mystery that they bring you, because that's, that's what it was. It was heresy. It was introduced into the church, and these men, whether they read it and they're copying directly or they heard it from other sources that were copying, they're basically just regurgitating Gnosticism. And they're putting it into new and twisted different ideas that match today's time. And if Irenaeus were to stand up today and write another book, (laughs) he would identify all of these cults and say, that's a heresy, that's a heresy, that's a heresy. And it matches this book of heresy that I wrote back in the ancient world, right? So it's, it's a fascinating study. Not everybody can do it because it is very time consuming. I did it as a... As a means to try to understand what what I was in and the framework of how it created and morphed into the cult that existed, I started this like 2013, and it t- it took a long time to go through it. So highly recommend that. The next one, the next question, kind of goes with this. It's a for me understanding the culture is not only fascinating, I love documentaries, I, I could sit and watch National Geographic all day long, but understanding the cultures as it relates to how false these movements are, I think is very critical. And that's <laughs> this question for me is probably out of all of them, it's my favorite question, which I'll ask you and let you start. Why does the message teach against wearing earrings?
1: Well John so the message like the rest of Pentecostalism is descended from the higher life movement and the higher life movement is the basic framework of the holiness and sanctification ideas that was held in early Pentecostalism and then into the message but if if you actually step back to that movement and you and you look at how it looked at those things there wasn't really a specific ban on earrings, there was a ban on jewelry in general. So, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit odd. The, the, the way that they would use logic to ban earrings is the same scriptural that they would use to ban all jewelry. So, um, is there a verse in the Bible that says, uh, don't wear earrings, but do wear wedding rings, right? Like, it's not, it's not there, right? The, the verses you would really have to use to rationale your way into banning that sort of thing would ultimately lead you to the banning of all jewelry, which is what the higher life movement did. Um, and so anyways, where does that idea come from? It's a holdover from the messages, ideas that it imported from Pentecostalism, which imported from the higher life movement that came before. Now, I, I think one very interesting thing, John, um, on this topic, which I think is probably worth pointing out here, is that. The message teaches us that we believe the holiness and sanctification teachings of John Wesley. Um, that's not true. The message does not teach the Wesley and the classical Wesleyan version of holiness and sanctification. Um, the message teaches the higher life version of sanctification and holiness. And that is such a, such a thing that, you know, when I figured this out, it, it just blew my mind. And I'm sure if you're in the message, this is blowing your mind too. If you're in the message today, you do not believe The Wesleyan version of sanctification and holiness. You believe the higher life version of sanctification and holiness. Okay. And here I have. Complete volumes of all of John Wesley's sermons. I think I have read literally every sermon John Wesley ever preached. I know exactly what John Wesley taught on holiness and sanctification. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the message does not teach the Wesleyan version of holiness and sanctification. It teaches the higher life version. And what happened is, you know, in the roughly the century after um, John Wesley died, um, you have the, the, you know, 50, 75 years after he's gone, the higher life uh, movement um grows out of um wesleyan teachings but the higher life movement changed several significant um features of john wesley's teachings john wesley would actually condemn the higher life version of holiness and sanctification um what what you find is some of the significant things that the uh, higher life version higher life movement changed is one they changed from progressive sanctification um, to instant sanctification. Uh, so John Wesley b- taught, you know, you progressively become more sanctified over time, and then, you know, at, by the end of your life, you are, you know, as sanctified as you can be. Whereas the higher life movement moves into this idea that you're instantly and immediately, fully and totally sanctified, and you live in instant, sinless perfection the rest of your life um, from the moment you're saved, right? That is the higher life uh, idea. That is not a, a, a teaching of, of classical Wesleyanism. The other significant thing that they changed is, um, this, the very definition of what holiness itself is. So John Wesley taught, um, what you'd call outward holiness and inward holiness. And John Wesley taught that inward holiness is the real true holiness. And then outward holiness is not actually real holiness. That is just, uh, a, a good faith effort to emulate on the outside. Uh, the true genuine holiness, which is on the inside. And then that's when he developed his methods, which is Methodist, right? He developed his methods in order to um, how to show outward holiness, uh, you know, based on your true genuine inward holiness. And those methods are largely based on cultural norms, and so, over time, those methods can change, because those methods are not really based in scripture, they're just based on practical implementation of, of these things. And so, but what you get with the higher life movement is they actually switch it up so that the outward holiness is just as critical to genuine holiness as inward holiness, which again, we're down a rabbit hole on this thing, but <laughs> the point being, the message does not teach classical Wesleyan sanctification or holiness. John Wesley actually would condemn the message version of sanctification and holiness. We're here today. The message teaches the higher life version of sanctification and holiness.
0: I avoid theology unless it's blatantly false. If it's blatantly false and the message or something similar has taught it, I'll bring it up just simply because it's blatantly false, and I avoid the the ones that can be argued to no end. I avoid those. <clears throat> but this about earrings is blatantly false. In the message, I'm sure you heard it in your sect as well as mine, but we were told that those were the quote-unquote devil's stirrups. <laughs> if a woman had that, she, they had her ear bored with an awl if she got the little piercing and... My wife, I remember when she got her ears pierced, this was a big deal. It took a long, long time, years before she broke free from that bondage that and it's false doctrine, blatantly false doctrine, that earrings <laughs> was the devil's stirrups, and you're going to hell if you do it. Um <clears throat> What's fascinating for this about this for me is that Understanding the culture is part of the freedom. If you are indoctrinated with something that's blatantly false, and then you understand the culture, well, then you understand why it's blatantly false. And understanding the why is what's key to freeing yourself from the bondage that these men have placed you under. We did a similar study on the hair, right? The the message taught that if you cut your hair, some message sects believe that, you're, you're doomed to hell. That's it. As soon as you cut the hair, even if you accidentally cut your hair, there are girls that live in mortal fear that somebody's going to accidentally cut their hair and they'll go to hell because that's how bad these these men have manipulated the doctrine. And they're not telling you that in the ancient culture, the women in the among the children of Israel for mourning would shave their heads. That's actually mentioned in the Bible. you shaved your head as as a means to mourn. Well, I can assure you if your head's completely shaved, <laughs> it's the, you're still going to have short hair. It's the same as cutting but it's completely shaved. And that was that was part of the customs. Now, <clears throat> earrings, it falls into a different category of holiness. Like you said, it's more it's not so much about the earrings where William Branham heard it. It's about the jewelry itself. And that's not limited to the message. That's not limited to Pentecostalism. That's limited to people who were poor studies of the Bible who got into positions of limited power in the sects of Christianity that they created. And I say that because had they understood the culture and all of the passages about modesty— in the and, and I mentioned this also in a previous question about how some of the words and verbiage has changed over time from the King James English, but the word modesty for its era, whenever these new doctrines of Christian modesty were being reintroduced, modesty at that point in time meant showing flesh. If you were immodest, you were showing your flesh, but it was much broader than this the doctrine of the jewelry fell into the gaudiness. You were immodest because you were showing too much of your wealth. You're flaunting it basically. And so then that turned into, well let's not show any jewelry. You women are not allowed to have jewelry. <laughs> and it's another folk another question for another day about how some of these doctrines are literally designed to control the women specifically because you don't have too many men wearing a lot of jewelry for me this whole thing is undone whenever you understand the difference between the gospel and what is taught in these cults which is a variation of the law In Galatians, it says if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, and it talks about, it's Corinthians, it talks about the letter of the law leads to the death of the soul. These men who don't understand the Bible itself, they had to have read this. I'm, I'm a little shocked that this developed into a devil stirrups doctrine. If any man who taught that has actually read the Bible, they know that in Ezekiel 16, Whenever God is referring to Jerusalem as his bride, it talks about how God adorned his bride to make make the bride beautiful. And it says specifically, I put an embroidered dress, so a fancy dress, and sandals on you, and fine leather, so expensive dress. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments, so very expensive I adorned you with jewelry. <laughs> and it's it goes on to say, I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. So lots of jewelry. And it says, I put a ring in your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. And it goes on and on to say, it's talking about, anointing with food and honey and oils and all of the ancient custom, the ancient custom at that time, if you were among the very wealthy, it included makeup and included eye, uh, shadows, etc. There were in the ancient world, there were the sellers of purple. This was a purple dye that they could put on their face. I think, I can't remember who it was. Someone in the, in the new Testament actually was a seller of purple. And that was a dye that they put, that they use for makeup. So you've got this fascinating study. But to bring it back in, why does the message teach against wearing earrings? It's because they've taken the modesty doctrines that had transitioned to such that you could not wear jewelry. And then, because it's an elitist cult, they want to do say that they're better than the other Christians, so they they have a better version of modesty. And that better version included no wearing earrings. And they ridicule, heavily ridicule women for wearing them. I've heard it in multiple sermons in multiple churches in the message cult. And yet God <laughs> put expensive jewelry with a nose ring, Charles, and earrings on the bride, which is symbolically referring to Jerusalem, I can guarantee you that if a girl were to show up with a nose ring in any one of the churches that I grew up in, she would be ran out of the church. <laughs> and That's how God dressed up the bride.
1: Yeah, we might be able to give a shout out here, John. Um, there is a group out there called Berean Holiness. Um, they've got a website out there, where they actually deep-dive quite a few of these topics in a very thoughtful way um, that I think, uh, you know, might be helpful to people exiting the message. Um, so, you know, you might go check that out and find some really good detailed analysis of these topics. Um, so, obviously, it's more than we can go in here in any sort of a, an in-depth or deep way to look at that. But, yeah, in a nutshell, the message inherited its teachings from the higher life movement, which there's a lot of other movements that also inherited those teachings from there as well. Um And so, yeah, that that is the answer to that question. So, I can move us on to the next one. And the next question is, we would like to know more about Mita Branham. Was she really this person who stayed in the background? What was her life like after William Branham died, and what did she do, and where did she live, and when did she die?
0: You know, my family was very close to the Branham family. My aunts and uncles spent a great deal of time in the Branham home in Jeffersonville, and then also the Branham home in Tucson. And, you know, (laughs) this question is from, I'm certain this was from a person who was in the message, and they're, they're more curious about, did she believe in the same way that the message believes today. That's really, I'm trying to read this question and read the heart of it because how do you answer a question? We would like to know, I'd like to know more about you, Charles. (laughs) Where do do you begin, right? You could go on for five hours and talk about Charles. So for me to Branham, you know, I can say that, and it's evident from the pictures, you can tell that she wasn't as invested in, how the cult progressed into a cult. She was a different person, I think, than, than what the cult has presented her as. And I can say that with some certainty because of the way in which my family described her. Can that be documented? None of it can. I mean, this this whole question can't be documented. So I'm I'm kind of straying into the hearsay category, which I do avoid. But what can be documented if you read Sarah Branham's letter, it gives you some insight into the way Mita thought about the cult in general and how she tried to distance herself from it. The cult had different versions as we've examined in this podcast. It was a Lateran message that after William Branham died, it transitioned into a legacy cult, a legacy message. I don't see her, at least from what I know about her, I don't see her as joining into the legacy cult. She was more about, you know, when he was alive, She that version of the message, the probably not even the last version of his stage persona, but shortly before that, before he appears to have completely lost her mind, I think she was more invested in that, as I understand her, than her whole world was shattered. When William Branham was diagnosed, and he mentions this on recording about being diagnosed with an incurable mental health disorder, her world was shattered. I mean, his life began to change. The cult began to change. It all became more destructive, and she's caught in the middle of this mess. That's how I see her as as being, but there's no real way to answer this question other than, you know, I I've heard these things and that's that's really all I can share.
1: Right, John. And and it's the same for me. You know, there's not a lot of documentation out there on Mita, because obviously everything in the cult is around her husband, William Branham. So there's just not a lot on her. Um, now we, we do have video of her, right, in that in the 20th century prophet video. Uh, we have a little bit here and there, but for the most part, you know, everything we would know or say about her is just things that have been, uh, repeated to us. Now, she, she passed away in 1981, right? So, you know, it, there's not a whole lot of uh, overlap, you know, with her lifetime and ours to be able to, to give too much information, but, um... She, we, you know, we've, I've heard quite a bit about her from people who did know her. Um, I I would say she was William, uh, Billy Paul's babysitter back in the, uh, you know, the early days after Hope died. She became Billy Paul's babysitter is the story. Um, And she would be, depending on which of William Branham's uh, birthdays is the right one, she would be between 10 and 13 years younger than William Branham. Um, and if you look at the pictures, uh, she, I'll say she looks significantly younger than that, um, in some of the pictures. She looks a, a good bit younger than him. Uh, but, uh, when they got married, William Branham would have been in his thirties. She would have been, I think, twenty-two. And so, you know, they, they had a significant age difference between them anyway. Um, you know, through the years that he traveled a lot, I I never I never heard a really I haven't heard a single bad thing about Sister Branham. Um, I heard only positive things. I heard her nerves were somewhat frayed. She was a bit of a nervous condition, right? Uh, so, which kind of comes with living in a maybe a high pressure environment. Um, I've also you know noticed from you know the photographs and the pictures of her, you see that she is a. Um, a well-dressed woman, uh, she, she is, uh, she's definitely cutting her hair, (laughs) I'll say that from the pictures, right? You can tell from the pictures she is not certainly living the extreme, uh, end of the message, um, holiness rules, you could say it that way. And then, uh, from, from what I know, after, uh, after William Branham died, um, yeah, she was not happy with the state of the message all the way for the rest of her life. She was not happy with uh, what was going on at the Branham Tabernacle uh, by a long shot. She she and a faction of her family actually fellowshiped quite a bit with, with our church. Um, and as long as she was living, there was still somewhat peace between our church and our sect and the main sect there in the Branham Tabernacle. But after she died, uh, that's when the clause really came out between... Uh, Raymond Jackson and your grandfather, uh, John, (laughs) but she was, she was in one sense. I feel like she was the reason that peace was maintained as long as it was. Um, so, you know, there, there's that aspect. And again, some of this is just my opinion based on things I've heard. Um So, you know, you might have a different opinion, someone else out there. I would also say, John, uh based on everything I know and how unhappy she was supposed to be about the state of the message in the final years of her life, I think it's very fair to say that if Sister Branham was still living today, um, she would probably be with Sarah Branham, wherever Sarah Branham is. And she would not be, she would not be Absolutely not around the main sector, any sector. I can't. I just can't see that myself. If she was, I mean, she'd be giving Joseph a spanking probably. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that would be my thoughts, John, on uh, on on Sister Branham.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> and again, I try to avoid hearsay and opinion. It's evident from the photographs that the life that the family lived was not the same as the life that the stage persona. Presented, <clears throat> you know. If you look, there's one photograph in particular, and I'll try to put it up on the video feed. But these people were dressing with the latest fashions, while William Branham is heavily blasting anyone <laughs> who's dressing with the latest fash- fashions. Like you said, the hair appears to have been a lot shorter than it should have been, and you know the knees are uncovered. The women are wearing dresses that are edging very closely towards a miniskirt. In our our sect of the message, Charles, if you showed your knees, the minister would actually rail you right in front of everyone who's in the audience and talk about how you were such a scandal of a woman. (laughs) It was beyond a scandal skirt. A scandal skirt in my sect of the message, if you had a little slit in the back, even if you're not even showing the calves of your leg. It had to be a skirt that went down and the calves of your leg could not even be displayed because modesty, they were trying to make this connection between skin. But that's not the way (laughs) Mita Branham and William Branham's daughters lived. They wore skirts that actually showed the knees. They had sleeves, sleeveless tops. And in my sect of the message, if you showed your your um, shoulders, you are a, a harlot, you're a prostitute. <laughs> and I'm not going to go too far into that because I I don't want to create any sort of conflict, but I will say that a lot of the doctrines that exist today come from the male side of that family. <laughs> and they know, they grew up with their sisters, they grew up with their mother, they know how it was, but they have found a means to manipulate and to control and the way that you do this is the more weights of burden that you can stack upon the Christians and just create a overbearing religion that is legalism hyper legalism that's that's what these men create that's not the way that they lived next question <clears throat> Um, Charles, William Branham, this is a question for you more than me because this is probably going to get more into the books, but William Branham said that believers were divided into three categories, true believers, make-believers, and unbelievers. Can you tell us where William Branham got that?
1: So John, that is actually a, just a fairly common saying among evangelical Christianity uh, back at the turn of the century, you know, the, coming out of the 1800s and the 1900s. It's just a fairly widespread term, right? Um, and, you know, you just make a quick survey of, of religious or Christian literature from that period, you'll find that term scattered throughout. I mean, for example, I can... Here's an example I can show you where um, that language was used in Sunday school lessons from uh, the Sunday school book in 1911. So this, this language... Existed before William Branham was born It's just kind of common language that was out there among Christians. Um, now, somewhere along the way, you know, where did William Branham get that from? You know, did he read it out of one of these books? I don't know. I think more likely he just picked it up listening to other preachers, um, and other people out in Christianity, you know, as he, as he grew up or as his ministry progressed and he heard someone else say it and he liked it and he repeated it, but, um, Point being, it it's just it's a fairly common phrase. It's not unique or special to the message in any way, and it predates the message.
0: Right, and I'll go a step further because, <clears throat> like you said, it it predates the message and it's somewhat widespread. Not everybody who does this has an evil mind, but I will say this: we see this in politics. <laughs> I'm going to avoid names of politicians because we'll get backlash, but. If you have a politician who has a very narcissistic personality, one of the tools of manipulation that narcissists use is they will take groups of people who are supposed to be their supporters, their devotees, and they'll try to say that there is unbelief among you. Some of you are true believers of me. Some of you are not and what it does to the crowd of people, it makes them want to be even more zealous towards whatever's the agenda. They say, oh, I hope it's not me. I hope I'm I'm not the middle category. I don't want to be that. I want to be a true believer. I don't want to be an unbeliever. In the end, there aren't three. There are really only two. You either believe or you don't. An unbeliever is a make-believer, and a make-believer is an unbeliever. (laughs) There's only two categories. But if you want to drive a wedge into the crowd and say, I want you to be hyper vigilant. That's what you do. That's the way you do this. That's the way that they manipulate you. They try to put this fear in your heart that you might be the one who's unbeliever. And so, or a make-believer, they want to make, (laughs) make you feel like you're not doing good enough. And that's the tool of manipulation that was used here.
1: You know, the way William Branham sets that up, you know, that you have this category of make-believers. I know where I come from. This this sets up all kinds of witch hunts, John, because you're always trying to find the make-believer among you, right? Um, we, we had the belief in our sect of the message that we had to purge out all the make-believers slash tares slash, you know, lower-class Christians before the end of days could happen. And so there's just a constant desire to discover the make-believers among you and and mercilessly crush them and run them out of the church. And so there's just endless witch hunts against people. And you know that is so, it's so messed up, you know, what what the way William Brenham introduced this stuff. And all of the people, I mean, it's just that it's hurt and damaged, right? I mean, and I'm not talking about, you know, make-believer, you know, they're obviously living a very immoral lifestyle or something, but make-believer in the sense of you secretly disagree with some obscure doctrine of the message. You are a make-believer. We must find you and destroy you, right? Like, it. it's like that, and it, it's so bizarre. It is so bizarre how the message does that and just destroys people's homes and lives, you know, on these make-believer purge quests. Um, I don't know if you had that where you come from, but purging the make-believers, uh, uh, that's the phrase I'm using here, it was a common uh, theme and feature <laughs> of our sect of the message. Absolutely. All right, John. So that takes us to the next question. It is um, uh, some people talk about the permissive will of God and the perfect will of God. Uh, Can you tell me where that comes from?
0: (laughs) Out of all the questions in here, Charles, (laughs) this is to me, this is the funniest one, because being in the cult royalty and seeing how things work. I'm certain that you know this as well as me. So I'm, I'm glad I get to answer it first so that I can call it out. But to somebody who has seen the perfect will and the quote unquote permissive will of God from this type of religion, the permissive will is whenever you want to do something that violates all cult rules, <laughs> I'm in the permissive will of God, God gave me this permissive will so I can watch television so that I can see the news and preach it to you. I saw it in a hotel room. I mean, <laughs> there's there's no end to how you can abuse the permissive will of God. If you're a minister, it is your get out of jail free card. <laughs> That's all this is. And You know, there are some biblical examples of the permissive will of God. I'm not talking about that. You theologians who are watching or listening, I know that you'll come back and you'll say, but there are things that exist. I'm talking specifically about the way the cult abuses this phrase so that they can do whatever it is that they want if you are the cult elite.
1: Yeah, so I I would say the, the... basis of where those things come from is really lies in the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, right? So I think Calvinism would tell you there is no such thing as the permissive will of God. There's only the perfect will of God. And then the Arminian would say, you know, you have both. You have the perfect and permissive. So this really comes back to, you know, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. And what is so bizarre, John, so I'm I'm not going to analyze what's right or what's wrong there but what i'll point out to you is that the message believes in both um very bizarrely because william Branham taught both the message is both calvinist and arminian at the same time okay i'm sure we just exploded the heads of every rational (laughs) listener out there the message is calvinist and arminian at the same time the message believes in conditional election and unconditional election at the same time the message, the message believes in predestination, you know, total full predestination and total full free will at the same time, right? And so you're – and they believe – and John, this is really cognitive dissonance. They believe they have reconciled all of that when the truth is they have just cognitive dissonantly –
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, make – think they have reconciled it all, right? They, they have not. They are – I mean it's – so William Branham taught both, and what you really end up with is this massive circle of a loop where you're Calvinist, and then you're, "Oh, now I'm Arminian, and now I'm Calvinist," and you just end up in this loop that never ends with any solid conclusion. It's just pure circular, pure circular stuff. So, and the message does not really teach or have concepts any way that I ever heard taught, or I don't really think even William Branham taught that much on like the sovereignty of God. Or even free will. Like, these are topics that are not dealt with in depth in any sort of way in the message. Um, it's very shallow what the message teaches, and that's how they get away with being both Calvinist and Arminian at the exact same time. Um, and what you end up with, you even have some preachers who, who err on the side of Calvinism, you have some that err on the side of Arminianism, and you get these, <laughs> really bizarre contradictory <laughs> stuff that happens in the message. Anyway, so back to the permissive and perfect will of God. Um yeah, so obviously the the idea of permissive will of God leans on the Arminian side of things. Um so you, you within the message you'll have people who will Believe that, yes, there is a perfect and permissive will of God. And then at the same time, they'll believe, no, there's not a perfect and permissive will of God. So you you get this really weird—sometimes they'll use different terminology to work their way around those words. But where does it come from? It it comes from Calvinism and Arminianism. That's where that stuff comes from.
0: And there's one other point (coughs) that I'll make. It's also a good means for a minister in this type of religion to— get out of apologizing. An example of this, I don't know if it was the same in your sect, but in the main sect, whenever Bill Clinton was president, there was this wide movement saying that he was being controlled and manipulated by Hillary, and therefore Hillary was the fulfillment of William Branham's female president prophecy, which is completely absurd, but that's, that was the theology that was spewing forth out of the platforms that (laughs) went in the message when I grew up. And then afterwards, there was this sudden lull where there's nothing that even resembles a (laughs) female president. Well, there was the way in which some of these men will backtrack is they'll say, well, we as a nation are now entering the permissive will of God. God is permitting us to continue, even though we should have, we should have been raptured then. The, the world should have been burned. The nation is under the permissive will of God, and they'll, they'll spin it in 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 a way in which they can say that I was wrong, but I'm not going to say I'm wrong. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the next question, Charles, we were taught that there were different classes of Christians, the Bride of Christ, the Wise Virgins, the Foolish Virgins, the 144,000, the sheep, the goats, and so on. Where did these ideas come from, and are they part of historic Christianity?
1: Well, John, um, most of historic Christianity is, is kind of what we talked about with the different classes of believers. There's really only believers and unbelievers. There's really only saved and unsaved in historic Christianity. Um, The idea of a class system in Christianity uh, is not part of the historic teachings of the church, no. Um, Now, I think most Christianity does believe that there is differences in rewards in heaven. So, you know, some people maybe get a bigger reward for whatever reasons in heaven than other people. But as far as that amounting to a heavenly class system um, no 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 nobody believed in that ever um, no I mean as far as historic Christianity where does that idea come from where does where does that stuff come from well that actually evolved actually during the days of British Israelism that is where that came from um, you had people who you know especially as it moved into the United States um, were using this ideology to justify the maintenance of a class system, a class hierarchy, you know, where you had an elite or ruling class, you had a working class, you had a slave class, and so in order to justify their class system here on Earth, they went in the Bible and they invented a heavenly class system, right, um, where, you know, people would be servants for all eternity or your your reward in heaven would get to be someone else's slave, like, you know, <laughs> they came up with stuff like that, and and so, it was really just to justify the you know an earthly class system they invented the heavenly class system now here's the thing you know, like you 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 go to the bible for example paul says you know there's neither there's neither jew nor greek there's neither male nor female there's neither bond nor free so you you really get the picture in scripture that there is no sort of a class system um within the confines of christianity and and then uh, you know the last party says there paul um there's neither bond nor free. There's no hierarchy in heaven. There's no bond or free. There's no there's no higher ups that you report up to, right? That just does not exist um, in that way. There's not going to be a heavenly class system in heaven where you're reporting up a tree, you know, up a pyramid structure, and the people at the bottom are the slaves to the people on top. Um, and so that, like I said, evolved in British Israelism originally as part of justifications for, you know, uh, a class system, which was, you know, the British Empire was very heavily um class-based at the time. And then um it went into overdrive with the Christian identity movement, right? The Christian identity movement took it and made it not just simply class but racial in a lot of ways. And so the messages, teachings on those things do not really come from um like it don't come from Jehovah's Witnesses it don't come from Adventism it don't come from Baptists or it don't really come from any of those things where those ideas come from the place that you found that they were pioneered and developed was within British Israelism and the Christian Identity movement and that is exactly where the message imported those ideas from
0: i think understanding how deeply British Israelism influenced Pentecostalism and fundamentalist Christianity back in the early 1900s. I think that's key to understanding all of this because whenever you mention the 144,000 and try to say that this is in any way, shape, or form applying to Christians, men who understand the covenants, usually who have been trained under schools of theology, But men who understand the covenants just simply reading the book of Hebrews will tell you there's a old covenant, there's a new covenant, and the old covenant had failed, and now we've entered into a new covenant, that there's this separation, there is a clear separation between the old covenant law and the new covenant of grace. Men who tried to adopt this British Israelism idea... They did so by taking specific passages out of the old covenant that applied to the Jews, that applied to the children of Israel. And they tried to take each one of those passages and then point it to something in the 20th century. And by doing so, they ripped it out of context. A good example of this, William Branham did this too. He said that in, He was driving through chicago and he had (laughs) this vision of nahum nahum was talking about chicago when he talked about the chariots running to and fro well no that's not true if you read the book of nahum (laughs) it clearly identifies nineveh as the target of that prophecy but pentecostalism had this very bad idea and i i can say that with full assurance it was a bad idea that you could take a word or phrase and you could build a theology on top of it without considering the context of the verses before and the verses after. Because by doing so, you could take any book and you could make the book say anything that you wanted. I could say that Charles was the president last year. If I were to take a book that's talking about the president and has the word Charles in it and just read one single sentence, you know, you can make a book say anything that you want if you rip it out of context. And at its core, this question, the different classes of Christians, what it's referring to specifically is different passages with different phrases that were applied to different genres of biblical text. Some were prophecy, some were law, some were poetry. I mean, there's different classes of text. And what they have done is these men tried to apply that to the 20th century. And then along comes William Branham, who is... Picking and choosing different doctrines from different men, many of which were manipulated to believe British Israelism, and then claiming it as divine prophecy or divinely inspired doctrine, when it was just plagiarizing all of this, and at its core, it was false. And so what I'm trying to say is he was building upon false theology to introduce additional false theology. And that's that's really the core of what this is.
1: Right. And at, at the end of the day, this is the root of where all of the elitism ideas of the message come from. You know, we're, we're the bride, or we're the wise virgins, or we're, we're this, that, or the other. Um, that's really what it serves in the message is to feed into the idea that there is an elite class of Christians rather than what Paul you know, says, you know, there's neither free nor bond. Uh, they they introduce this sort of a hierarchy. So very, very strange, really, what, what they do with this to some extent. And I think the majority of Christianity would find it to be um, rather bizarre. And the truth is, the only other group of people out there that you're really going to find like that is other groups that have also been influenced by British Israelism. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses have it to a degree. Um, you'll find it in Christian Identity Theology, you'll find it among some of the other British Israel groups out there, Herbert Armstrong's groups, for example. These are the only groups out there that have these ideas, really, of a heavenly class system. Um, so, moving on to the next question, um, it is, could you talk about all the people who claimed to be Elijah before William Branham, and where they got that idea from?
0: The Elijah study, it's actually related to the previous question, Charles. It, Without British Israelism, you can't have this Elijah notion. You have to take the passages of biblical text that applied to the Jews, and you have to twist it into the 20th century. And so everything that we said in the last question really is the same as this question, because it's ripped out of context and there were other people. One of the first studies that I began was in this book, Jim Jones, the Malachi for Elijah prophecy. I was just curious for myself, how many other people claimed to be Elijah? And I was a little shocked when I learned how many there were, but then the question began to form. How many of those were in direct succession leading up to William Branham? And Obviously, John Alexander Dowie is the biggest one. He he was the most famous Elijah that I'll probably say has ever existed since the original Elijah, and he might have been more famous than the original Elijah. (laughs) John Alexander Dowie was the American Elijah. He was the prototype. When he began to lose control of his... He had to annex an entire city for his cult of personality. And when he lost control of that city, there were millions of dollars flowing through this. So you had this sudden swarm of other men who wanted to, quote unquote, claim the mantle of Elijah. And they didn't call it that back then, but that's essentially what it was. One of the men who came was charles fox parham and he actually seized control of zion city at least part of it for a period of time before they ran him out but there's this clear succession of elijah men jim jones his um you know he was in this message cult he learned from branham and then he you can find some um it's mentioned in the book i don't have it in front of me. you can find some quotes where People in his divine healing lines are talking to him as Elijah. So there is a succession of men. There were many people. This was not anything new. And there's this, um, there's this one newspaper article that I'll pull up for the video. It's titled The Religious Grafter, (laughs) and it reads, Of all the grafters, the religious grafter, or the self-appointed Messiah, or Elijah, or Daniel, or Israel, or Adam, is the meanest. The religious graft is also one of the most profitable, and hitherto has been comparatively safe con games to play. From the time immemorial, smooth-tongued, consciousness individual has been able to gather about him a lot of weak-minded people who were prepared to accept as gospel truth all that he said and was willing to do all that he commanded them to do even to discarding clothing and living as the savages lived so this was a problem that was so widespread men claiming to be elijah these other names this was such a problem that in 1911 this article is dated 1911 as early as 1911 there had been so many that at least this journalist said we've had enough <laughs> there are so many con men out there when are you people going to wake up and realize that when somebody makes this claim they're probably out to get you And Charles, I can assure you, if you were to suddenly claim to be Elijah and go into a church service somewhere and stand up and say, God spoke through me and said, I am the Elijah, the prophet, follow me. Most people are not going to follow you. They have to be first manipulated to believe you, then brainwashed, then they follow you.
1: Right. That's well said. You know, that's what William Branham did himself, right? Like, he didn't come on saying, hey, I'm Elijah, guys, come follow me. He spent decades and years <laughs> out doing his stuff and then kind of introduced that publicly, you know, as time went by. But yeah, the the idea, uh, you know, that this Elijah's going to come back and all the people that claimed it, that is a really big topic um, more than we can, you know, fully digest right here, but I'll try to give just a quick overview too. Um, you know, the idea that Elijah would return has been around for a really long time. I mean, it, it goes back to Judaism itself. Judaism itself expects the return of Elijah, uh, before the end of days. So, you know, that, that idea pre-exists even Christianity. So it's a really old idea. It's how the book, that's how the Old Testament ends, right? Basically, Elijah's coming back. That's how the, the, uh, Jewish Old Testament ends. So it's a really old idea. Um, and if you're tracing, you know, tracing how it came into the message, you got to go back to the 1700s. Um, John Darby took that Malachi 4 prophecy and he began applying it to uh, one of the two witnesses of Revelation, uh, believing that Elijah would come back, you know, at the end of days, and and he taught that he would be coming back to Israel, to national Israel, to the Jewish people, um, and but not to the church. Uh, because obviously the Malachi 4 prophecy is to Israel, not to the church. So no matter what you do, it's kind of hard to twist it and apply it to the Gentiles. So he 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 broke it up into the two days, you know, there's the great dreadful day, and then the dreadful day is the second coming, the great is the first. So very similar to the message, except he applied the second one to the the two witnesses of Revelation. Well, British Israelism picked up some of Darby's ideas, right? Uh, British Israelite preachers began incorporating some of that as you come through the 1800s. And, of course, they thought they were Israel, right? And so now Elijah's not coming to the Jewish people. Now Elijah's coming to them. And this is how you get in the frame of mind that an Elijah's going to come to the church. It's it's at the point in time the British Israelites think that they are Israel and they are the church. And so as that happens, that's when you start getting all this glut of Elijah showing up. Um, you, the, Alexander Dowie is the first one that I know of starting in the 1870s. He's a big British Israelite. He's been influenced by this stuff. And he starts presenting himself as Elijah um, around the turn of the century. John Sanford uh, started doing the same thing. He started presenting himself as Elijah. Um, he was also British Israelite. Then the next one I know of that was prominent was Charles Parham, really the founder of Pentecostalism, honestly. He claimed to be the Elijah after Dowie died. Then after Parham died, John Lake claimed to be Elijah, which John Lake was also British Israelite. All these guys are British Israelites, and the British Israelite framework that allowed for the idea of an Elijah returning to a church which was made up of Israelites, okay? (laughs) Now, the message eventually lost, and Pentecostalism itself ultimately rejected, you know, the idea that they were the ten lost tribes of Israel, but they keep some of these prophecies hanging around, right? That are left over from the... Influence of British Israelism. And the influence of British Israelism on the message especially is hard to overstate. I would say this is one of the biggest kept secrets, is just how influential this British Israel ideology has been. Um, And honestly, the corrupting influence it had on the teachings of the message. Um, Because obviously they were not Israel, therefore they misinterpreted that prophecy one way or the other. So you've got that. And so besides those British Israelite guys, there were other guys who were also famous um, that went on and really influenced the Christian identity movement who also insinuated or claimed to be Elijah. Um Howard Rand, Arnold Leith, John Smith Pigo they're moderately famous British Israelites um, who insinuated that. And like I said, those guys were fairly influential in um, the formation of Christian identity theology. And so If you added up all of the guys I know of, um, there were somewhere around 15 different British Israelite guys who claimed to be Elijah between 1870 and 1950, um, William Branham being in a direct line of succession from those people.
0: And I think the most concerning part of what you just said is how deeply this has been covered up, which is one of the reasons why I want to dig deeper with these stones that we've kind of lifted up to see what spiders are underneath this for me this is one of the biggest ones we had in our Gordon Lindsay episode we had this person who really heavily attacked me and started out simply by sending emails saying you're wrong Gordon Lindsay did not Accept or teach or get involved with the British-Israel doctrine, even though in the documentary itself, <laughs> I'm showing newspaper ads where he's the headline speaker at a British-Israel conference, right? He's going to the headquarters where the British-Israel notion, like the the man who's organizing the whole movement in the United States, Gordon Lindsay's there with him, right? And it was so covered up that he wrote into christ for the nations and their official pr response was no gordon Lindsay was never involved with this thing and my response was a question well what about the books that he published about (laughs) about british israelism do you sell those anymore and obviously they don't sell those anymore you won't find those for sale at christ for the nations because that whole history has fully been whitewashed and erased which for me, you know how my mind works, Charles. That's part of the reason I'm diving into a little bit deeper in, into the next series of episodes. If something has been erased and covered up, I want to know why. I want to dig deeper and I want to know why.
1: Yeah, we, we covered a lot of that in the Gordon Lindsay episode. You know, my, my opinion is that most of Pentecostalism had rejected um, British Israelism, and then generally people as they dropped it are embarrassed that they ever believed in it and i i think that shame and embarrassment of having ever believed in it played a big role into why a lot of that stuff was was destroyed but but they but they all were all of the all, all of the prominent figures leading up to William Branham were british israelites ff F. bosworth was a british israelite they were all in this um mindset that they were part of the 10 lost tribes of israel right and that they were Israel. That's how they applied prophecies like Malachi 4 to themselves. Um, it's, it's, it's odd. And, and you know, I understand, like, I, if Gordon Lindsay quit believing in that, well, I forgive Gordon Lindsay. That's no big deal, right? I can let that go. Um, but hey, let's just tell the truth about it, right? This happened and these were the fallouts from it. And Gordon Lindsay woke up one day and did better. Like, why can't we just be truth about it instead of pretend like it never happened at all, right? So that, that's my thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, if you make a mistake, that's fine. If you cover up your mistake, and you erase the history of it, how are you going to learn from your mistake? And how are the people who are learning from you years later, how are they going to learn from that mistake? You have to leave it out there in the open, right? But there are there are so many questions charles i think we're going to split this again and um we're going to have a third after the (laughs) after the finale episode of the questions that are being recorded so i'll cut this up and i'll break it up so that it is in digestible chunks for the listeners if you've enjoyed the show and you want more information you can check us out on the web you can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham in the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming.